You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. Now, this week we are going to be talking about Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID. We're also going to be talking about anorexia, uh, the differences between ARFID and anorexia, and we're going to be talking about picky eating. And when I say we, I am talking about myself and PhD candidate Hannah Zickrath, who I contacted because I was reading a paper that she was one of the authors on, and I thought, this is interesting, I'm going to see if she'll talk to me. And lucky for me, lucky for you, she said yes. The paper was titled, Adult Picky Eaters with Symptoms of Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, Comparable Distress and Comorbidity but Different Eating Behaviours Compared with Those with Disordered Eating Symptoms. Now, Hannah and her fellow researchers were incredibly kind because in the paper that they published, underneath the abstract, they put a plain English summary. And I'm going to read that to you so you have an idea of what we're going to be talking about or what the study was about. Okay, so the plain English summary for this one is, picky eaters are people who avoid many new and familiar foods because they dislike their taste, smell, texture, or appearance. When it is severe, picky eating can lead to weight loss or difficulty maintaining a healthy weight, nutritional deficiencies, dependent on supplements to get adequate nutritional calories, or difficulty engaging in daily life because of shame, anxiety, or inconvenience. People who experience one or more of these consequences because of their picky eating can be diagnosed with Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID. People who restrict the amount of food that they consume because they are afraid of gaining weight or being fat, and who usually engage in excessive exercise or purging behaviours to get rid of calories, are diagnosed with anorexia or bulimia when their eating leads to weight loss, nutritional problems, or interferes with their life. ARFID is a new diagnosis, and in this paper, we show that, firstly, adults with ARFID symptoms are just as distressed and likely, as just as likely to have symptoms of depression, anxiety, and obsessive-compulsive disorder as those with anorexia or bulimia, and secondly, that adults with ARFID symptoms serve very different types of eating disorder behaviour from adults with symptoms of anorexia or bulimia. So, hopefully... I'm not just the geeky one, and after hearing a bit of that, you're interested in this study as well. I've always been pretty interested in ARFID. In my coaching practice, I have come across a couple, I I wanna say a couple, I've come across more people with ARFID than I ever thought that I would. And everybody who I have experienced in in coaching or just in um, other sorts of eating disorder advocacy and um, the Slack group, who have ARFID have usually not been diagnosed with ARFID but have been diagnosed with anorexia nervosa and something that we get into in this podcast is the problem with that when a person who doesn't actually have anorexia nervosa but has ARFID or a different sort of eating disorder is diagnosed with anorexia nervosa and therefore treated for anorexia nervosa which is kind of inappropriate. So we get into that, but we do talk about, um, we define ARFID more for those of you who are a bit sort of um, rusty on what this new eating disorder, um, new as far as the DSM-5 is concerned anyway, it's probably not new at all. And probably picky eating and ARFID have been around since the beginning of time or beginning of humans time anyway. Um, 
but it's a new as far as the DSM-5 classification is concerned. And so we do get into, into that, what it means and what the presentations of it are. So without further ado, here is Hannah. The first thing I asked her was to tell us a little bit about herself. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I study clinical psychology um, and my focus is on treatment development and assessment of avoidant restrictive food intake disorder primarily, uh, which is a new eating disorder diagnosis that was added to DSM-5 in 2013. I also do research on anxiety, OCD, um, other eating disorders. And what got you interested in these fields? Um, I was originally interested in OCD. but my undergraduate advisor, Paul Rosin, studies like the development of food preferences and why people eat the way that they eat, sort of the cultural and social interpersonal factors that go into it. Um, so I was doing a lot of experimental stuff and it wasn't really working out. And he had this data set that had questions about picky eating um, that he sort of gave to me to analyze. And I got really interested in picky eating and I realized that it was a pretty common problem that probably on the severe end was really clinically significant, but it was extremely understudied at the time. This was in 2013. It's funny that you mentioned OCD because um, I was sort of, I had anorexia, but I had a very um, OCD expression of it. And Mm -hmm. I spoke to Cynthia Bulick um, a couple of weeks ago and did a podcast with her and that we we spoke about the genetic locus for anorexia and how close that is actually to OCD, which Mm -hmm. it's like, well, lots of bells went off in my head and I think a lot of other people's as well. ARFID, especially picky eating, probably is also going to be found to be related to anorexia and OCD, sort of in that same family. Right. So for anybody that doesn't know what ARFID is, could you explain it best you can? Because I know it's a bit of a tricky one. (laughs) Yeah. So it's not, it's not, the clearest diagnosis. It's basically, I mean, sort of the history behind it is helps to explain why it's a little bit unclear, I think. Um, So, I mean, as you probably know, in DSM-4, in the previous iteration of the Diagnostic Manual for Psychopathology, there were only two eating disorder diagnoses that people could get. And it was kind of hard to diagnose people with either of them. The, um, The behaviors that you needed to engage in for bulimia were pretty intense to qualify for a diagnosis. And for anorexia, the amount of weight loss was really severe. So a lot of people had really impairing eating pathology and couldn't meet criteria for either of these diagnoses. So DSM-5 made some changes to both of those, but there are also a lot of people whose eating was really restrictive and was causing nutritional problems or weight loss even, or just a lot of life interference, but it wasn't at all related to body image concerns. So they wouldn't meet that basic criterion for either of the existing eating disorders. So ARFID was introduced largely to help those people get a diagnosis. It was also introduced to help psychologists be sort of more involved in treating young children and developmentally delayed older kids who had significant feeding problems. Um, originally, this there was a sort of similar diagnosis, but you could only get it if you were under six. So uh, what, uh, sorry, what ARFID also did was it expanded the age range for um, feeding disorder diagnoses. So what do you think are the most com- most common misconceptions about ARFID? One thing about ARFID is that it's really not just one thing. Um, it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion, or it's also been called a garbage pail diagnosis. It's basically, it's sort of intentionally very broad and vague, so it's not that hard for people to meet criteria for it. 
basically to be diagnosed with ARFID, you have to have some kind of restrictive eating that leads to weight loss, nutritional deficiency, dependence on nutritional supplements or interference. And that eating disturbance can't be primarily body shape and weight concern driven. But the actual nature of the eating disturbance isn't really spelled out in DSM-5. So they give some examples, um, including picky eating. So being just such a picky eater that it's really hard to get adequate nutrition or eat enough. Yeah. Um, being unmotivated to eat, which it's kind of unclear what they mean by that. That's the sort of the classic presentation of feeding disorders in infants. There are babies who just are so hard to feed that it's hard for them to grow. It can persist into older into you know, toddlers, but it's sort of unclear what that would look like in adults. DSM-5 kind of mentions that there are some people who, when they get severely anxious or depressed or very stressed out, will stop eating, and that can, if that leads to weight loss. I've also, I've, what I've seen in relation to that point is people who, um, they're not, not eating because they want to particularly lose weight or because they're scared of gaining weight, but actually it's, it's more of a, what um, might be considered an ADD sort of aspect like I, I've known people who will sit down and start a meal get through three bites and then be distracted by something and get up and then forget to go back and eat again and yeah then, and so, which which for somebody with anorexia who was obsessed with food again <laughs> food all the time and right. couldn't sort of I would never just forget to eat it was always very yeah. intentional not eating but it certainly wasn't just like oh there's a rabbit over there I want to go and pet I'm not going to eat right um and that fascinated me yeah, so there's there's sort of two constructs that might be related to this kind of disordered eating in adults. So DSM-5 describes it as apparent lack of interest or limited motivation to eat, and those are possibly two different things. So it could just be like a general reward deficit or a reward deficit that's specific to food-related rewards. A person would be more likely to forget to eat if food wasn't as intrinsically rewarding for them as it is for most people. It's also possible that some people have sort of dysregulated gut-brain communication that makes it hard for them to recognize hunger. Um, it could be that when people consistently suppress their hunger or do things other than eating, whether it's because they want to lose weight or because they're just really busy or because they're a picky eater and there's no food around that they like, over time, ignoring your body's hunger signals and eating in a way that isn't responsive to those hunger signals can disrupt hunger and satiety. And with weight loss, if they're, if they're losing weight um, as a result, then that, that can yes. disrupt hunger. Um, yeah. yeah, so it does take on a life of its own. Yeah. Um, and then also DSM-5 mentions that there are some people who um, stop eating in response to emotional distress. Those are probably not all the same presentation. They're probably not caused by the same things, although they might have sort of common underlying vulnerabilities. Yeah. And another another sort of um, aspect of, of this that fascinates me that, oh, God, what's, how do I say the, the posh word for it? Um, emetophobia? So yeah. Is that, did I say it right? <laughs> I think so. I'm not really sure. So Nobody ever calls it that. Fear, fear of vomiting. And, yeah. Um, I've also spoken to people that have not just got fear of vomiting, but the fear of feeling food being ingested or even the thought that they've chewed food and it's gone down their throat and it's that, the thought of that process freaks them out. Yeah. So I, I work in an OCD clinic and we have seen sort of OCD presentations like that where people are just so attuned to their bodily sensations and so sort of disgusted by them that they do avoid eating. Yeah, and then if you're feeling disgusted at the thought of that, then it's very difficult to eat when one feels a sense of disgust. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just fascinating. And um, yeah. I do feel a lot of people, especially adults, feel that they're just not really being listened to. They get told you have anorexia and you've got to stop like being scared of gaining weight. And they're not 
then they feel that they're not being t- listened to as they're saying, no, it's not the weight gain. I'm scared of the feeling of food going through my stomach. Yeah. I mean, there there haven't really been any studies of ARFID in adults in clinical settings, but there have been a bunch of retrospective chart reviews of adolescents with eating disorders in like adolescent medicine eating disorder settings. Okay, I have to jump in here and apologize for the sound quality. There was um, some noise disruption in the room that Hannah was in, and it's intermittent now. Comes on for a couple of minutes, um, goes away again, comes back again. It's annoying. I couldn't completely get rid of it, and I thought that what she was saying was interesting enough. I didn't want to cut the whole thing out, so I'm sorry. I'll just have to put up with a little bit of a buzzing in the background for the next two minutes or so. So... Yeah, in those studies, what they tend to find is that people, a lot of people meet criteria for ARFID in those settings, but they didn't get that diagnosis because they were treated before ARFID was introduced to DSM-5. So most of them were given the EDNOS diagnosis or eating disorder not otherwise specified. So what those chart reviews typically find is that people who actually met criteria for ARFID didn't do as well in eating disorder-focused treatment. So the ones that were underweight when they presented were less likely to regain the weight than people with anorexia or bulimia. And they were also less likely to stay in follow-up, so they didn't really stay in touch with the treatment team as much if they had ARFID. And I think it's almost definitely because they, it wasn't an appropriate treatment for them. They weren't not eating because they were afraid of gaining weight. And also, refeeding is not going to work if you're a picky eater. It's really, I can't imagine it would be really traumatizing for a picky eater to go through that. Yeah, and that's another, that's another really important part of that, I think, is that you know, for, for somebody with anorexia who really none of their food aversions are anything to do with a genuine picky eating problem. It's all to do, you know, with, with energy. It's, and it was all energy deficit motivated. Then it's very relevant for that person to eat a lot of food and get through all of that. But if that's not the, if that's not the case, then it could be you're just traumatizing that person and not helping at all. Yeah, especially if they have vomit phobia. choking choking phobia is also probably a a big contributor that one's really understudied so there's actually been no empirical studies of choking phobia but in all of the case study literature it seems like a majority of people with choking phobia end up restricting what they eat okay so tell me about the most uh, recent research that I I contacted you about yeah so that was a study so because ARFID is so new um kind of the first step in studying it before we can really get into any of the interesting like mechanisms or risk factors or any of that, we need to be able to kind of just describe it and recognize it when we see it. So the goal of that study was to partly just to validate the diagnosis of ARFID to show that people who are reporting symptoms of this eating disorder are just as distressed and have just as much comorbidity as people who are reporting symptoms of more traditional eating disorders. In this case, it was anorexia and bulimia. Um, well, sort of anorexia and binge eating compensatory behavior and binging behavior, but at potentially clinically significant levels using a validated diagnostic screening tool for those disorders. Um, So what we found was that when people who said that they were picky eaters indicated that they're picky eating specifically, so not any other eating restrictions they might have had, we were careful to specify that. When picky eating led to weight loss, to nutritional deficiency, supplement dependence, or interference. Those people reported just as much anxiety and depression, elevated OCD symptoms, and eating-related clinical impairment as people with anorexia and bulimia symptoms. And in most, on most of those variables, except for eating-related interference, people who were only picky eaters but who didn't experience those negative consequences didn't really report elevated comorbidity. So what we also found was that when we compared picky eaters to typical eaters, so people with no eating pathology, 
and people with ARFID symptoms or anorexia and bulimia symptoms. Picky eaters did report significantly elevated um, food neophobia, which is a fear of eating new things. And they also reported elevated scores on a measure of rigid eating, so only eating foods that they like if they look a certain way or if they're not touching other foods. So both of those were supposed to be sort of continuous measures of picky eating severity. And on those measures, picky eaters scored higher than people with traditional eating disorder symptoms. And picky eaters with ARFID scored even higher than other picky eaters. When picky eating is really severe is when it's more likely to lead to ARFID. How would you, how would you differentiate? Because people with anorexia can um, develop picky eating as well. And all of those sort of similar things that you described, like not having foods touching and eating food in a specific order. I think I did most of those things when I was sick. Um, so how would you differentiate between that? Would it come back again to the fear of weight gain being the primary underlying motivation? Um, yes, although the, the instruments that we use to measure those behaviors don't actually specify why people are doing it, except that the wording for the, the rigidity measure has to do with preferences and liking. So the idea is that picky eaters are doing those things. It's driven by sort of disgust or by aversion to contact between foods or by perceiving familiar foods that are presented a little bit differently as totally new. So triggering food neophobia. And that process is probably different than sort of the rigid compulsive patterns that people with anorexia can get into. But yeah, I mean, given that a lot of people with anorexia display those same behaviors. It is interesting that we were able to differentiate picky eaters from people with anorexia symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm always really interested in, in any symptom that somebody might display. And I do fall heavily on the camp of thinking that all of these things are not entire. Like, of course, the environment plays a role, but, you know, you, genetics for picky eating, genetics for anorexia, you know, otherwise... I think that their prevalence would be much higher if it was completely environmental. And, you know, the genetic studies are coming through. So I'm always I'm, I'm interested in things like food neophobia and what why why would those genes have evolved and, and what would have maybe been uh, an evolutionary benefit to that sort of thing? So this is actually this is a line of research that my advisor did years ago, um, and he kind of coined the term the omnivore's dilemma which is basically that when a species is omnivorous, that's in general really good for the survival of the species as a whole because it allows them to thrive in any environment if they can eat basically anything. Um, but it's dangerous for individual members of the species because if you're able to eat anything, that means that the set of foods that you theoretically could eat includes things that could poison you or make you sick. Um, and then on top of that, humans in our evolutionary environment were probably mostly scavengers and hunter-gatherers, but most of their food probably came from the gathering part and from scavenging other animals' kills. So we were in a food environment where a lot of the food that we were encountering was sort of of unknown origin and possibly not safe. So food neophobia is a physiological defense mechanism against ingesting food that might be poisonous. Um, and the evolutionary theory of that is that that's sort of the reason food neophobia is most pronounced when kids are toddlers. Because that's the age that kids are able to feed themselves and they're mobile and a little independent, um, but they don't know yet what's safe to eat and what isn't. So evolutionarily, the ones that didn't go around sticking everything into their mouths were probably the ones that survived into adulthood and had children yeah. of their own. Yeah, and probably more so in certain areas than, than possibly others. 
Um, well, yeah, in environments where the food supply was more variable or more uncertain, most yeah. likely. Yeah, I, I just, I think I always find that it, it fascinating just to understand, you know, if we can take away the layers of this is all um, a reaction to society or wanting to be thin or wanting to look a, so a certain way. And what I like about Arthur is it really actually shows eating disorder expressions without that thinness um aspiration which then doesn't allow us to assume oh you just want to be a skinny supermodel right i imagine that when we do more genetic research on arfid and sort of more family aggregation studies we will find that there's elevated rates of arfid in families of people with anorexia i think that they are they probably have like common vulnerabilities possibly related to sort of executive functioning and people's ability to be flexible in general when it's applied to food, in some cases, it might end up being good foods and bad foods or safe foods and dangerous foods. But for other people, it might end up being food and everything else is just not. Picky eaters are very rigid about what they consider to be food. And that's really similar to how people who, with active anorexia tend to treat food. Yeah. And so for, for people who are picky eaters, then what what is what is the desired treatment outcome for that person? Is it to get them eating a wider range of food? Um, or is it actually to more work on the psychological distress side of things? Is, is, there, is there a set course for that? I mean, that's a really good question. So the treatment for picky eating is kind of in its infancy right now. Um, and there's actually a really interesting community online called Adult Picky Eating Support or Picky Eating Adult Support. Peas. It's like an online support group for adult picky eaters. And I've done some research in that population before. I recruited from that group for the study that we were just talking about. And there are people on that message board who feel like ARFID is over pathologizing them. They, they're sort of what they want is for picky eating to just be more accepted. And there's a ton of stigma associated with picky eating. I, these data were unpublished, but I also collected data on people's just sort of free definitions of picky eating. And it was really interesting how negative most of them were. Um, the word childish or spoiled or finicky, things like that were used a lot. So some people who are picky eaters, even severe enough to have ARFID, they think that the problem is not with them, but with society stigmatizing them. And they do experience a lot of stigma. Um, so... You know, if I had a patient who was really picky and didn't want to change, but, you know, was still distressed by it, we might do things similar to what we would do for social anxiety or even for people with body image problems. If they were medically stable or, with, yeah, yeah they were med- there's, a, there's that factor that always comes into it, isn't there? Yeah. So the thing with ARFID is that the weight loss doesn't have to be life-threatening and the nutritional deficiency doesn't have to lead to malnutrition. Many people with ARFID are medically stable, um, especially adults. So, you know, if somebody wanted to live dependent on supplements um, and wanted to have a really narrow diet and honestly wasn't bothered by it, you know, technically they would still meet criteria for ARFID, which is unlike most other diagnoses, because most of them require that the person be distressed by it, and ARFID doesn't. Yeah. But, you know, if somebody was medically stable and didn't want to change, I would never tell them they had to. Most people who you know, have jobs and families and friends eventually run up against situations where their eating gets in the way. Um, I mean, most picky eaters are motivated to eat and they really do enjoy eating the foods that they eat. So it can be really hard and frustrating to be in social situations where you're really hungry and can't eat anything. So back to the, the recent research that you did, what was the most surprising thing? Was anything surprising about it, or did it pretty much work out as you'd all hypothesized? Pretty much did work out as we hypothesized. I mean, it was... So yeah, we were just interested in... 
we, it was sort of an exploratory study. So we were interested in just seeing whether people with self-reported ARFID symptoms were comparably distressed to people with self-reported anorexia and bulimia symptoms. I mean, because the, the diagnostic criteria for ARFID are less severe, although we didn't actually apply diagnostic criteria for anorexia and bulimia. But, you know, the, the picky eating is a really common, normal behavior. So it wasn't a sure thing that people who experienced these consequences from their picky eating would look as clinically distressed as people with traditional eating disorders who also experience a lot of sort of cognitive symptoms and a lot of um, kind of internalized, self-focused, negative thoughts that people with ARFID don't typically have or that aren't part of the diagnostic criteria for ARFID at least. So I think it was helpful to see that ARFID really is that distressing. It is that highly associated with anorexia, with um, anxiety, depression, OCD. People who had, who both met the screening criteria for anorexia and reported ARFID symptoms were excluded from this sample. So these are, were people who really only did have ARFID symptoms. They did not report high levels of eating disorder symptoms at all. So it, it pretty much was as you had expected, that it's highly distressing and you know, from, from that research, do you think there are implications for treatment? One implication, I think, is that the second study aim was looking at behavioral measures of picky eating. And I think those results indicated that when picky eating is more severe, people are maybe more likely to have ARFID. That what we found was that people who have ARFID have more severe picky eating behavior. So we can't really know about the directionality of that. But because picky eating has such an early age of onset, it's usually present before age six. I think it's pretty safe to conclude that picky eating tends to come first for most people. So what that indicates is that if you know, your child or you are a more severe picky eater, changing those behaviors, sort of targeting maybe the cognitive underpinnings of picky eating or definitely targeting the behaviors could help alleviate ARFID symptoms. What do you think's next? What, what do you think the, the field will do next in terms of uncovering or research? So I think there's a lot more descriptive psychopathology to be done. Um, so that's kind of my focus right now. I'm sort of expanding to other groups. We have ongoing studies with children with OCD and anxiety looking at ARFID symptoms in that population. We're expanding that to an adult OCD and anxiety population. Um, I'm also interested in ARFID in people with clinical obesity. So we're looking at ARFID symptoms and other eating disorder symptoms in a population of people who are um, candidates for bariatric surgery. I'm interested in whether ARFID and specifically picky eating might interfere with bariatric surgery outcomes, making it kind of hard to make those dietary changes. So just sort of describing what ARFID looks like across different populations other than adults on the internet. And also my research that's been published is only focused on ARFID that's caused by picky eating, but I am also interested in those other two presentations. For DSM and for the field will be to more clearly distinguish these different presentations, because even if they have common risk factors, I don't think that they're the same thing. I think that respond differently to treatment for sure. Absolutely. And as we were discussing earlier, you, you know, the, the differences do really do make a difference as to how yeah. somebody reacts to treatment. Oh yeah. Because the treatment for picky eating ultimately is exposure based. It's just giving people techniques to make it easier to expose themselves to new foods um, to prevent things like gagging or the urge to spit it out and to teach them how to do exposure in a way that's gradual enough that it helps them overcome the neophobia and the disgust reaction. Because exposure exposure component of treatment for anorexia and bulimia is largely an exposure to anxiety, the fear of eating forbidden foods. Whereas for picky eaters, there is usually anxiety involved, but there's also a lot of disgust and 
prescription. And that habituates more slowly than anxiety. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That makes the treatment for picky eating different than the treatment for OCD, which is sort of the model. That's not the same treatment that we would do if somebody had a fear of vomiting. In that case, since that's anxiety driven, we would go faster, we would introduce their former diet more quickly, and we would focus more on their beliefs about the likelihood or danger of vomiting just for instance. Massively important. And um, I, I do think that especially in adults, anorexia is diagnosed where really uh, probably ARFID should have been with, in many cases. And so then anorexia treatment it fails a lot of people. Let's just put it that way. Because <laughs> yeah. it's not really being looked at for what it is. And if that person is having a gag response or a disgust response, then it can make them immediately feel like even more of a failure. <laughs> And also, you know, treatment providers telling them they're being difficult. And I can, I mean, I can imagine somebody with really deep-seated food aversions or really significant picky eating. I can imagine how much they would clash with the treatment provider in an anorexia setting. I mean, it, they would just be speaking different languages. It would be really frustrating for both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For somebody like myself, what I found frustrating was the psychologizing because I, I didn't have body dysmorphia. And although I was fearful of gaining weight... I wasn't actually, you know, I never really wanted to be thin. Thin. I knew I could see I was thin and it was just nothing to do with that. It was just a pure fear that had been triggered by energy deficit. And so it was frustrating even for me to be told things like, oh, the reason that you're doing this or the reason that you're doing that. And I was like, there's no reason. I don't know why I'm doing any of these things. So it, it must it's, it must be a similar sort of um, thing for people with ARFID that are maybe, you know, just having a disgust response to food. And then they're, they're being told, what's the reason behind this? <laughs> like, what, and, and sort of um, psychoanalyzed at um, when really they just want to be helped to eat. Yeah. Just because I'm interested is with picky eating. Have you observed any particular food that is quite common for people to have an aversion to? Well, my advisor, uh, Paul Rosen's research and just sort of typical American food preferences. This was in like the 80s, I think, so it might have changed. But he found that the most frequently disliked food was raw tomatoes. So raw tomatoes have like a lot of different textures going on. Picky eaters tend to not like mixed textures very much. So um, is that when you're working with somebody who is a picky eater, you sort of have a hierarchy of foods that they want to be able to like? Probably because, I mean, even tomatoes, it's if, if you can't eat tomatoes, that does rule out quite a lot of sort of traditional food combinations. Um, Usually we have them create a hierarchy that's based on if there's significant like nutritional gaps in their diet or if they're missing a food group, we would want them to have a, to add a couple representatives of that food group. But for most of them, most of the people that I see in an outpatient setting are perfectly healthy and their main reason for coming to treatment is because of interference or because they're dependent on supplements and they want to be more flexible. So the, a big reason why people choose the foods that they do to put on their hierarchy is social. I wanted to finish off the podcast by asking Hannah what the one thing that she would like to say or make clear to people listening was. And this was her answer. Um, I mean, I think... Like one thing, I, as this is getting more clinical attention and more psychologists are becoming interested in it, I, I always want to emphasize that picky eating itself, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not weird or abnormal and it's not inherently unhealthy. It's not a sign that somebody has a disorder. When picky eating becomes really severe, it can get in the way, but that's true of a lot of behaviors that we see as totally normal. So picky eating is really common and picky eaters are stigmatized enough as it is. Um, I think it's important to study it because it does seem to be a subclinical manifestation of an eating disorder, but 
pick eating in and of itself is not a problem. And we probably don't need to over psychologize it either and say that person's not eating tomatoes because oh, it's... <laughs> that's the reason they don't like them. They don't, don't like need them. To any deeper than that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a CBT therapist, so I don't psychologize anything. I, CBT therapists just focus on the motivational reasons why people do the things they do and even things that stuff that seem really maladaptive and unhealthy there's always a reason and it's always internally logical or almost always so there picky eating in itself is not a problem and it's not a disorder and it's not even really that weird and if you don't like tomatoes then you don't need to try and draw any conclusions about yourself as a person your childhood or your emotional state. You just need to conclude that you don't like tomatoes. I really enjoyed that um, that conversation. You probably know why. I mean, most people that listen to any of my podcasts know that I, I like to get away from the assumed underlying meanings of eating disorders and into the nitty gritty of this is the behavior, this is the problem, and how do we fix it? Or not, how do we fix it? Because that sounds preposterous. You don't fix people. It's more, how do we help this person live the best life that they can live? I think that's more to the point, isn't it? Anyway, thank you to Hannah for coming on to the podcast and discussing that with me. In the show notes to this episode, I will link to the things that we discussed. So obviously the study that they just conducted, and I'll also link to things like the omnivore's dilemma, other things that we mentioned in that recording. If you enjoy these podcasts, then please consider joining our patron. And that just means that you're basically going to throw a couple of quid or a couple of dollars at us every month. It doesn't have to be much. Um, help us keep going. Or another thing that you could do is go to the iTunes store and give us a rating in iTunes. Because when you do that, it helps other people, maybe somebody who's searching for eating disorder podcasts, to find this podcast. So if you rate us, then we go up in the listings. And I would really appreciate that as well. So thank you for listening. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio.